0: What I have for us this morning is James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to read the text as we go along. It's, it's a lot, and there's a ton of good stuff in there. But what I want you to see from the outset, connected to what we looked at last Sunday, it should be bright red at the top there, and that is that wisdom's not from above produce fighting, worldliness, and slander in the life of God's people. You may have recalled last week wisdom not from above. Last week, we talked about the wisdom that is is not from Christ, wisdom that's not rooted in knowing God, having a relationship with Him, lived out. That's what we kind of define as a working definition of the wisdom that comes from above. It's a knowledge of God, a relationship with Him, lived out. That's wisdom from above. And yet, all of the wisdoms of earth, the wisdoms not from above, even if they have a semblance of God's Word and God's heart, must be held loosely and with discernment friends, because all of those wisdoms, all of the worldly ways of thinking and ways of living start in a different place and they end in a different place, even if there is overlap with the kingdom. we, We rightly recognize that, but because it's not a wisdom from above and it's not a way of life from above, it starts in a different spot and it's going to a different spot. Therefore, we have to be discerning. We hold those things very loosely. And because of that, because these earthly wisdoms, what we called wisdoms from below, do not start or end with knowing God and knowing His Word, they're going to inevitably lead to worldly conclusions, even if for a season they overlap with the Scriptures. If embraced without discernment, wisdoms not from above will slowly cause us to drift, to drift toward worldliness. And the worldliness um, that James has in mind is really his whole letter. He's been giving us all kinds of marks of worldliness, uh, faith without works, partiality, doubting, all of these other things. But specifically in our context of James 4, verses 1 through 12, he gives us three examples of the lives that worldly wisdom will inevitably create. Lives of first fighting and quarreling, verses 1 through 3. Secondly, lives of worldly living or worldliness, verses 4 through 10. And third and finally, lives marked by slander and damaging speech. So that's where we're headed. I want you to see first that the worldly wisdoms, if embraced without discernment, will inevitably cause you to live a life of fighting and quarreling. That's verses 1 through 3. So let's look at that together. We follow along as I read verses 1 through 3. On your own passions. So, to set the stage here for this first chunk of our text, I want to tell you the story of two brothers, Rudolf and Adolf Dassler. Rudolf or Rudy was born in 1898, while his brother Adolf or Addy was born two years later in 1900. I was, I was working on this, give me a second. They were born in the town of Herzog in Awach, a town in the German Empire. Together, the brothers would, uh, they founded a shoe company, a shoe manufacturing company called Gebruder Dassler Schuhfabrik, or Geta for short. The brothers worked well together, as one, they, they were different and yet complementary. One brother was a manufacturing and design genius, while the other was excellent in sales and marketing. The company was success. It was a huge success and grew in prominence. One example of this being in the 1936 Olympics, which were held in Germany. So think spicy political climate. You might know a guy named Jesse Owens. He wore Geta shoes to win his gold medal. But all was not peaceful. Tensions grew between Rudy and Addy. They, they, it grew fiercely between the two brothers. Reasons for their fighting and quarreling were numerous, But most historians say it's two main reasons. The first was their wives. They hated each other. And they were forced to live in the same house. The whole family, extended family and everything, lived in the same villa. The wives did not enjoy one another. And so anger eventually would grow between Addie and Rudy. The second reason for the tension is that Rudy was eventually drafted to fight in World War II for Germany. He joined the Nazi party. Both brothers actually did. Um, But Rudy was placed on the front line and would eventually be captured and imprisoned by the Allied forces. Why that matters is because Rudy had it in his mind that somehow Addy had got him drafted. And once drafted, it was partly his brother's fault that got him pushed to the front line. True or not, we're speculating at this point. But they did not like one another. Addie and Rudy's tension would not be overcome. After three decades of working and success, the company split fiercely, and it was ugly. The company, Gabruder Dassler Shoe Fabrique, split in 1948. Rudolph, or Rudy, would launch his own company, combining his first and last name, and he called the company Ruda, short for Rudolf Dassler. But the company didn't sound that great, so he desired to change the name to sound more athletic. And so he named his company Puma. His brother, Addy, a year later in 1949, combining his first and last name, created Adidas. A river was the only thing that separated Rudy's Puma factory and Addy's Adidas. Puma to the south, Adidas to the north. The family... Split. You were either Puma or Adidas. The entire community chose between the two, and employees and families did not speak to employees and families of the other. Restaurants, bakeries, and pubs were either Adidas or Puma. Restaurants, bakeries, and pubs. The town actually would come to be called the town of bit necks because everyone would walk around looking at what shoe you were wearing. You were either on their side or an enemy. The companies would go to sponsor rival soccer teams, and everything in their life was anger and war and fighting, Puma and Adidas. Unfortunately, neither of them were prepared for the juggernaut that would be Nike, but we're not getting there. <laughs> Rudy would die in 1974, and Addy four years later in 1978, and they were buried in the same cemetery, at opposite ends of the cemetery. Fighting and quarreling. And before we start to look down our nose at the Dassler brothers, we know their experience, don't we? Even petty fighting, even disagreeing with a fit friend or a spouse, and you know you've lost the fight, but you're not giving up yet. You know you were wrong and and should repent now, but you're going to double down and just try to outmaneuver in the arguments. Now, we we probably don't know the Dassler brothers' experience in magnitude, splitting an entire town. But all of us are familiar with, and and maybe I would add, all of us are prone to relational conflict. Bad news for some of you. If you're not familiar with relational conflict, there is likely some awaiting you in the future. James here opens chapter 4, challenging us as God's church to resist relational conflict. We should not be marked by fighting and quarreling. But even more than simply challenging us, even more than just simply pointing it out, James is going to pastorally identify for us the root of our conflicts. He's not content with you just knowing you shouldn't do it. He's going to tell you why you fight and why you Quarrel. Why I fight and quarrel. Why there is relational conflict. Now, as an aside, here I do want to point out: good news, you don't have to be involved in relational conflict. I don't know if you knew that. You, you don't. You don't have to. You can bow out of fighting and quarreling. You can, with the help of the Spirit, as much as depends on you, live at peace with other people. But we're talking here in James that when. Relational conflict is present, and specifically, when you participate in relational conflict, James tells you why. So he's going to hold out two truths for us. First, he's going to say that discerning the root of fighting and quarreling is pretty simple. I don't know if you knew that. The the reason you fight and quarrel, pretty simple. And then the second truth he's going to hold out for us is that the settling of your relational conflict is also pretty straightforward. So let's look at those. First, the root of fights and quarrels. Verse 1 tells us your passions or pleasures or or desires. James is saying, you want something, don't have it, so you fight and quarrel. Now, the word uh, often carries a negative connotation in Scripture. That is sinful, self-indulgent pleasures selfish passions in you. It's where we get the word for hedonism, actually. It's unmet sinful cravings. That's why we have relational conflict. That is why you have had or will have relational conflict, your sinful heart. your bent once. And so what I love here is, is James is not going to let us say I just have relational conflict because the two of us are just not compatible. He's not going to let you say it. James is not going to let us say, well, it's just, we don't get along. You do not have relational conflicts because you have different personality types. It's not because your Enneagram number is different than theirs. Your Myers-Briggs profile is different. That's not why you have relational conflict. That's not why I fight and quarrel. I fight and quarrel because of my sin. Because I want and I desire and when I can't get it, war. In addition to identifying the root cause of conflicts being our passions, our sinful hearts, he displays the seriousness of it. Do you see what he gave us in verse 2? Murder and Coveting, coveting. I think he gives us this for two reasons. One, it sounds a lot like the Sermon on the Mount. Another connection James is making back to the words of our Savior Jesus when he went around preaching and teaching. He said things often like, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I say to you, even if you're angry in your heart, you've committed murder. Sounds a lot like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. But the second reason why I think he's he's holding out for us murder and coveting, like two serious sins, is because James knows that we will never begin to resolve our relational conflicts until we feel the weight of how serious they are. How serious it is to be fighting and quarreling with other brothers and sisters in Christ. It's serious. James tells us the root of our relational conflict is our sinful passions that is at at war within us. We want, we don't have, so we fight. But secondly, he tells us that the settling of our relational conflict is pretty straightforward as well. At the end of verse 2 and verse 3, he says, ask. This hit me like a ton of bricks, this truly, James doesn't say, no more truths and you won't fight. He doesn't say, don't fight. Stop. He doesn't tell you to try harder and you'll better at not fighting. He doesn't say control your mind and cut it out. James says the way to resolve relational conflict does in fact start with recognizing it's because of your disordered passions, but it's ultimately tied to asking God for things. So this is what hit me like a ton of bricks. Pause for a second here and let me ask you a question. It's not a trick question. What do you call it when you ask the Lord for things? I see it. Prayer. Now, with that in mind, go back to to, to verse 2. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. That's called prayerlessness. And you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly. Friends, James is saying the reason you're fighting is your disordered passions. They're at war within you. You want it and you don't have it, so you're ready to kick anybody to the curb. But he's saying the reason these people are fighting and likely the reason you've had relational conflicts is you don't pray or you pray wrongly. That hit me big this week. And anecdotally, I know that when I've had relational conflict, guess what I'm not doing? praying or I'm praying wrongly that I'd win and my side would triumph these brothers and sisters in Christ to whom James is writing friends are, are not praying they're not asking the Lord and they're not receiving because if they are asking they're asking in align line with their sinful passions and so they fight they fight they quarrel they fight So the reasons for your quarrels, sinful desires, unmet passions of our rebellious hearts, and why are they so hard to resolve? Why are my relational conflicts so hard to solve? We're not praying. You're not communing with the Lord. Or you're praying selfishly. A praying life, friends, a a life lived near the Lord in humble reliance upon Him and His Word is the only hope of truly resolving relational conflict. They seem to have drifted from closeness to God, slid toward worldly living. That's next. They've become friends of the world by listening to worldly wisdoms, and their lives have been marked by fighting and conflict and quarrels, or as one pastor has helpfully observed. Quote, persistent, unresolved conflict often reveals a lack of satisfaction in God and a lack of conformity to Christ. I see that in my heart. I see it in relational conflicts in and out of the church. And it makes sense, right? Why, why would the solution for conflict be closeness with Jesus A a, a praying life. Well, what was one of the repeated refrains of our Lord Himself? Ask. Ask, and it will be given to you, Matthew 7, 7. Ask of your Father, Matthew 7, 11. Whatever you ask in prayer, you'll receive if you have faith, Matthew 21, 22. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe, and you will have received it, Mark 11, 24, Luke 11, 9 through 13, How much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Ask. Be with the Lord. Ask. Ask. James opened with it in James chapter 1 verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. So friends, in conflict, ask yourself, what passions of mine are being unmet right now? Begin by assessing whether you can simply put that unmet craving to death or maybe give it to the Lord. But then ask this very important question, what have I not been asking the Lord in prayer that might be at the deeper root of why I'm fighting right now? Because, friends, the gospel will and can meet those unmet cravings. Jesus stands in heaven in glory, reigning over the nations right now, and he's inviting you to ask him, ask for more of me, draw near to me, ask for more of the Spirit. Worldly wisdoms, that is, wisdoms not from Christ's word and rooted in the nature of God, leads to fighting and quarreling. Not just out there, but in here. The second thing, though, that these worldly wisdoms, if not held with discernment and held loosely, will produce what I'm just calling worldliness. This is verses four through 10. Now make no mistake, there's going to be some challenging words in here, but I want to start actually with a man named John Newton. John Newton is a, a Christian was he's dead. Christian, pastor, hymn writer, though previously before that, a slave-trading, lustful, angry, intolerable man. Known likely, if you have heard that name, for his famous hymn, Amazing Grace. But that's not what I'm going to quote. John Newton once said the following words, and I have quoted these words before, I think Roger has as well. We sing a song here at New City based upon these words. So listen to John Newton Our sins are many, but his mercy is more. Our sins are great but his righteousness greater. We are weak, but he is power. Most of our complaints in life are owing to unbelief. Now look with me at verse 6. But God gives more grace. Our sins are many, but his mercy is more. This paragraph of James, verses 4 through 10, is going to prove hard. It's got some challenging things in it. James is going to press against lingering worldliness in your life and in my life. And yet, in so doing, I want us to recognize God is being so merciful to reveal ways in which the world still has our hearts. Hence our confession of sin earlier that had the theme of worldliness. So, Well, James is going to hold out for us. He's going to tell us, one, that we are bent. We have a proclivity towards the world and its pleasures in verses 4 and 5. And then he's going to paint for us what a godly disposition of the heart might look like if you have been living a life marked by the world, verses 6 through 10. So first, let's look at our proclivity towards the things of the world in verse 4. Follow along with me. I don't know how to just got to start here. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. So, again, just starting with a pretty vivid imagery of adultery. And I think this is because it's it's an attention-getter. But James is also saying, and using this word on purpose, he's saying that to befriend the world is to commit spiritual adultery against the Lord. Hence verse 5. He yearns jealously over us. Now, the Lord's jealousy over you, over me, over his church, is not the sinful jealousy, it's not the the sinful spite of our own hearts, but a holy and pure and right jealousy over what is his. It's It's a refrain in the Old Testament. The Lord is jealous over his people. It is a pure and right passion of the Lord that he has over his own. God does not appreciate, and God speaks very strongly against Those among his bride, the church, befriending and loving another person, the world. Now, as a caveat, I do need to say here, there's there's a difference here. Maybe many of you were already thinking this as I was saying these words. Enjoying creation, enjoying God's good gifts, is not the same as worldliness. There is a way to enjoy God's gifts to us, food and drink and creation and outdoors and indoors and music and and books and things that He has given us. That's called enjoying God. We can glorify the Lord in the way we worshipfully receive those things. But I do wonder sometimes if the line between enjoying God's creation into worldliness is a little tougher then we realize. I'm only saying that because I know my own heart has made the argument. I'm just, this is, a, this is a good gift that God has given us. And it was just me liking the world. Each day, the choice before us is to value the Lord and His Word, or to value, give attention to, give our efforts to, our minds and and. and our whole lives, to the things and pursuits of the world. To choose the world, to befriend the world, would be to make yourself an enemy of God. Those are stark words that James is giving to a Christian community. Our allegiance is crucial. So that's that's the problem, is is befriending the world. But now, secondly, James also holds out for us, what does a a Christ-like posture of the heart look like, if that's been you, if that's been me? Befriending the world, being an adulterous man or an adulterous woman, marrying the world when we are married to the Lord. Well, he tells us in verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I made reference to this verse last Sunday, but just look at that verse again. What a wild verse. It's repeated in the New Testament, so it's easy for us just to gloss over it. God gives grace to the, the humble, but, you know, opposes the proud. The Lord is antagonistic toward the proud. It doesn't say he's indifferent. It doesn't say, eh, pride, he could, he could take it or leave it, eh. The prideful heart experiences the opposing hand of God. And that pride in this context is displayed by the fact that you're living a life marked by the world. You look just like the world. Proud. And my heart can struggle with pride. And so that phrase in a good way unsettles me thus james goes on in the next four verses to give you 10 commands 10 commands just boom boom humble yourself submit yourself to god resist the devil draw near to god that's just the first cluster look with me again at the end of verse 6 god opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble verse 7 submit yourself therefore to god Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's the first cluster of commands and, and most uh, commentators have, have made a, a big deal of this. Those are all closely connected. To separate them out and to have all kinds of different thoughts for each of them is, is not that helpful. They're all bound together. Why? Because to humble yourself is to submit yourself to the Lordship of Christ. To submit yourself to the Lord is to humbly... Put yourself under Him to have a glad heart of submission and obedience to God and His Word, which is to resist the devil. Resisting the devil looks a lot like glad submission to God and His Word, humble obedience upon uh, to His commandments. It might look a lot like putting to death sin in your heart, looking for pride in your own heart. And putting it to death. Taking your crooked passions and giving them to the Lord because it's there the devil gets a foothold. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. And this this struck me. The the beginning of verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Remember what James just said. The offended God is the one who calls you to come back. The one who has caught you in another relationship, an adulterous relationship with the world, is the very one who says, come back to me. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. That is the best news in the world. For those of us in this room who have been living a worldly life, a life marked by fighting and quarreling and relational conflict, God says, draw near to me. In faith, brothers and sisters, let's come back to the Lord if that has been you. Draw near to Jesus in the Word and in prayer. Draw near to God, as Daryl said at the beginning, in communal worship, in in our corporate worship gatherings. Draw near to God in confession and repentance. He says, come back. If you've been getting challenged by some of the things I've I've said or, or noticing worldliness in your own heart, The God of the universe says, draw near to me, name it, and come back, which leads me to the second cluster of commands here in verses 8b, we could say, through 10. All of these are repentance themes, so let me read them for you, and then I'll talk about them briefly. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Okay. That's a lot, right? Like, whoa. Remember the context. James is writing to those who are prideful. James is writing to those who have committed adultery against the Lord because they've chosen the world and its wisdoms and its pleasures and its things. Things. James is writing to those who are loose with their tongues. That's how chapter 3 opened, and that's what we're about to see in just a second. And he's writing to those whose lives are marked by relational conflict. James, this is what I'm saying, James is not anti-joy. He's not anti-laughter. He opened his letter with it. What James is saying is that If you've been living in worldliness, if you've been hurting people with your speech or your keyboard, if you've been walking in pride, if you have relational conflict and you've been a participant, dividing and quarreling, then yes, your life should not be marked with joy and happiness. But by repentance. But by confession. By coming back to the Lord, drawing near to Him so He will draw near to you. And when restored through the gift that is confession, through humble reliance upon Jesus, then celebrate, then rejoice, then be glad. But to be filled with joy and to celebrate and to have happiness when your life is marked by worldly living is an oxymoron. And James is saying it's dangerous. He's after double-mindedness. Did you see that little phrase in verse 8? James has used it before at the end of verse 8. Also a connection back to the Sermon on the Mount, a connection back to Jesus. James is after two-souledness. That's the word. He's after hypocrisy. I love Jesus. I'm 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 a Jesus guy on the outside, trying to put all put together, but inside you are not aligned with the things of Christ. You've been marked by worldliness. James is saying, and this is a gift, take off the mask. That's what hypocrisy means. It means to act. And I wonder if some of us in here might not be freed from the encouragement of James to say, drop the act. If that is you, speaking out of one side of your mouth, I love the Lord, but marked by friendliness with the world, relational conflict, quarreling and fighting, A double life. Friends, you don't have to live the double life anymore. Take off the mask. Tell somebody in this room that you trust, I've been looking at this. I've been thinking this. I've been cursing this person in this way. I've really enjoyed the world in this way. Take off the mask. And feel the weight lifted off your chest as you become real with your brothers and sisters and real before the Lord. Double-mindedness is what James is after so time's not going to permit me to do more than maybe a high level question here I would have loved to dig into ways in which worldliness kind of marks my life and seasons of my life and then maybe wonder ways in which your life could be marked with worldliness but I don't have time I do have time for this I want to ask you this question is the spirit suggesting anything that smells of worldliness in your heart in your life whether it's the way you're spending money the way you're thinking about sexuality this looks like the world way maybe it's the way you're ingesting entertainment you look just like your unbelieving neighbor and unbelieving coworkers maybe it's the lord lord's day your life looks like worldliness pertaining to sunday mornings which means non-attendance spotty attendance or late attendance to heaven and earth meeting right now Maybe worldliness looks like lust or anger, self-reliance upon yourself, which was the wisdom that we looked at last week. Ask this question. High-level question. Are there ways that slowly, over maybe months and years, you have increasingly become a friend of the world? And let the Spirit purge you of that. Name it, bring it to the Lord. Because I think James... Desire here for us would be to maybe apply this one verse. It's a a strange verse when I say it. It's Lamentations 3, verse 40. If I had to boil down these 10 verses on worldliness to one sentence, I think James would say this. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. So are there ways in your heart, your life, Maybe over months and years, you've increasingly become a friend of the world. I've asked myself that question this week. I'm asking the same questions of my own heart because the world is strong. The temptation is alluring. I want to say more, but we don't have time. The third third thing James holds out for us, this, this life of wisdom not from above, the wisdom not from knowing Jesus and his word, is marked by slander and damaging speech. Um, full disclosure, uh, I got an easy out here because I only have about like two minutes left. Um, you might re- recall, if your memory serves you, I think two weeks ago, James, uh, Roger preached a sermon from James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, on the tongue. Um, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. The danger of our tongues, how hard it is to control our speech, and the fire that it is. But James does return to it in this section on worldliness in verses 11 and 12. So I just want to read verses 11 and 12 and say one thing as we go to the table. Look at verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers, sisters, The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Friends, our English translations are doing the best they can with speak evil against. The NAS goes speak against, ESV, speak evil against. NIV translates it, do not slander The word is literally to speak against. And it certainly includes slander, but it's way more than that, friends. Just like Roger preached two Sundays ago on the tongue, James is after all speech that would damage and hurt another. But the one thing he adds here, look at verse 11 again. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. The additional piece that James gives us here is that it is especially severe to speak evil against another one of us, another Christian, a brother or sister in Christ. Here's what he wants James wants my speech, your speech, our speech to provide life giving, faith edifying fuel for one another nothing else he wants your words your typing fingers your bodily postures to communicate life grace goodness to one another and nothing else so i conclude friends we've seen that worldly wisdom's fruit is fighting and quarreling its friendship with the world and its thoughts and ways And thirdly, it's damaging speech against our brothers and sisters in Christ. But what's our hope? What's our hope? All the times that you spoke evil against another Christian, what's your hope? All the times that your life and your heart has been marked by friendship with the world, what's your hope? All the ways in which you have been an active participant in relational conflict, What's your hope? I think it could be this Jesus. Jesus is the answer. He always was. We can have hope to end our relational conflicts with others because the greatest of all enmities has been solved our estrangement with the Lord, our war against the Lord, which is called sin, our rebellion. To God and His ways, cured by Jesus' death in our place and His triumphant resurrection. Our war against God reconciled. The absolute peace treaty has been signed in the blood of Jesus. We who were once enemies have been brought near and made friends of God and given a seat at the table. Amen? Because of Jesus we can resolve conflict. Because of Jesus, we can say no to the world because we're citizens actually of a better world. Because of Jesus, we can speak in a way that gives life to others. And all the ways in which we have failed, the answer is Jesus, who died and rose again for us and reigns in glory right now, saying, I'll give you more of myself. Just look at the table. table that preaches to us redemption and forgiveness that we have through Jesus. And so, friends, I don't know what your life's been marked by, ways in which you might be tempted to befriend the world, ways in which you've been a participant in in conflict, and the ways in which you have not used your tongue the way you ought. I don't know, but the Lord does, and he says, draw near to me, and I'll draw near to you. Let's just do that. Let's, at the table, by faith, come to Jesus and say, here, here I am. I draw near to you. Nourish my soul as I partake of these elements. Friends, the Lord's table we do each week here at New City. It is for those who are trusting in Jesus alone for salvation. We say it's for baptized members who are a part of a gospel preaching church and have, are, are doing their best to follow Jesus with all they have. If that is you, you are welcome to the table. We'll serve bread, which symbolizes the body of Jesus given for us, and either red wine or white grape juice symbolizing the blood of Christ that made us friends with God after I pray, you can exit your your rose.